it's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by flick composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody, and uh, welcome to the uh, to the broadcast. I'm Tom Sumner. We got a good one in store today. Coming up in the third half of our three-hour tour, uh, educator and author Susan Lax has a uh, new book guaranteed to uh, tap into your joy. It's uh, an invitation to the Garden of Moments called A Heart's Landscape. And Susan will join me by phone coming up in just a little while. In the uh, middle of our three-hour tour, we're going to talk with uh, community and union organizer and author Daisy Pitkin about her book, On the Line, a story of class, solidarity, and two women's epic fight to build a union uh, which just came out in hardcover at the end of uh, March in uh, this year, 2022. But we start out talking with um, the author of a uh, new book called uh, Sex Is As Sex Does, Governing Transgender Identity. From uh, noted scholar and transgender advocate Paisley Cura. I think I'm saying that right, but we'll find out because Paisley's joining me by phone this morning. Uh, good morning, Paisley. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, am I saying that name right? Because I'm terrible with names, Paisley. <laughs> me too. Uh, Paisley Cura. That's how I say it anyways. Okay. All right. I was I was close. Pretty close, yeah. I, I took yeah. a stab at it. Um, but, but let's talk about... Uh, governing transgender identity. What do we mean by that? Well, I wrote this book after working for a long time as uh, a transgender rights advocate and also someone who studies, you know, transgender legal issues. And one of the things that had been my main assumption about policy that affects transgender people was that such policy were like was like transphobic it was intentionally out to harm transgender people and one of the things i learned is like i delved into the topic is that a lot of the times in the past especially transgender people were the you know accidentally affected and accidentally harmed by these laws um and we have to kind of do much bigger, deeper dive into like the whys and wherefares of, of gender-based laws to understand like how they come about and how we can best get rid of them. When did we start becoming more aware of the fact that there were other options? Um, you, you know, for most of human history, 
you're born male or female? Yeah, so that's that's a really, really good question. Like, transgender is a term that's like, you know, I think it's maybe, uh, I should look it up exactly 50 years old or so, but um, um, so it's not a term we can really apply to the past. Um, but the idea that, like, there's this natural gender distinction between men and women and that men are always like men and women are always like women, that's more of a cultural assumption we have that we put on the past. So there's there's always been people who, uh, you know, exhibit what we now might call gender nonconforming um, characteristics. A colleague of mine from um, Amherst College, Jen Mannion, just wrote this book called Female Husbands. And it's about what we people we might now call transgender, but you know who knows how they would have identified. But, but about people who were assigned female at birth, who you know presented themselves as men and were often in relationships with women. So there's a long history of of people crossing gender divisions. Yeah, there's um, a funny little piece. Maybe I'll play it. Um, coming up in a little while uh, from Victor Borga and he talks about uh, he's telling a story and he, he refers to his two male uncles and he says in Norway we have to you know we have to specify those things because a lot of people don't realize we have three sexes male female and convertible <laughs> and and it's a great line it's a, it's a very funny line and and um, but but it speaks to this issue that this is not really a new idea. Right. It's not it's not really a new idea. I think what's what's new ish is that like as as governing got more complicated and people started to get birth certificates in the nineteen thirties and then people you know, and we have all these different forms of ID now people we now call transgender have been increasingly caught up in the, these kind of systems that classify people as male or female and these systems that don't necessarily work for, for transgender people. But it's really on the last you know few decades that I think the public at large has become more aware of, of transgender people. What, for the purposes of our conversation, Paisley, what is a transgender person? Is it someone who has changed their gender or someone who doesn't fit the genders that have historically been available? Well, that's a really good question. And a lot of people might have different answers of what transgender is. In the broadest sense, transgender can refer to people who just move away from the sex they were assigned at birth. Like, you know, so it could, it could talk about, it could apply to gender nonconforming people. In a smaller sense, in a more narrow sense, sometimes transgender refers to people who have whose gender identity is different than the one that would be associated with their birth sex. That's how we talk about it in legislative language. Basically, someone who is, you know, assigned was like born as born male and then has a female gender identity. That person would be a transgender person, a transgender woman. But how is that um, different? Where does, for example, men who dress like women fit into this? Well, so men who dress like women sometimes the um, sometimes those folks would be for, re referred to as cross dressers. They would they those those folks would be gender nonconforming in the sense they're not conforming to the stereotypes of how men are supposed to behave. And in a, in a kind of policy way, in a movement way, they would fit under what gets called the the transgender umbrella. Um, so that would, sure. that would include J. Edgar Hoover. 
Yes, I mean, Jay Vancouver would probably be spying <laughs> on transgender groups rather than like trying to join one, but technically it would. Um, yeah, but but he very famously um, was a, a cross dresser. Yeah, and the the thing is, there's like so there's a kind of cultural stigma associated with people kind of, um, you know, crossing gender norms that it was you know people keep those kinds of parts of their lives secret, especially in the past. I think more people now are more open about cross-gender behavior. How is it that um, that Scotsman wearing kilts is not considered cross-dressing? Yeah, that's a, that is a very uh, good question. Um, because the, the thing about gender is like, people tend to see it as like absolute and based on this natural binary, but it's really based on cultural norms. So, you know, like, um, you know, Scots wearing kilts, you know, as was like, that was part of their gender culture. It's just like pink. Yes. used to be a very masculine color. It used to be like a lot of wealthy upper class men wore tons of pink, but at, over the 20th century it became a color associated with femininity. So the, the cultural codes associated with gender can switch and um and change but it's just so odd because i you know i grew up in an era where the symbols on bathroom doors were somebody wearing pants and somebody <clears throat> wearing a skirt and that was the difference between the men's room and the ladies room yeah i know that's so called. fascinating and they still have those symbols everywhere they're still everywhere um that the skirt symbol but um, as we know, a lot of women wear pants now. Um, so the, the, those, the gender shifts aren't just among transgender people, but, but gender norms generally have, like, have gotten less, uh, less binary and, and yeah, uh, it's funny. strict. It's funny, Paisley, because that image isn't suggesting that women always wear skirts. It's suggesting that men never do. Yes, that's a really uh, good observation. That men never wear skirts, um, but in fact they do. I mean, I don't know. Do they have that in Scotland? That would be a really good question. Simple <laughs> in Scotland. That is a good research question. Yeah, I think I think they would go with lads and lasses or yeah, that's probably right. Yeah, yeah. I don't I don't know what their um, what their international symbol would be. Yeah, no, that it's a it's a very good question. Um, what kinds of questions should we be asking with regard to uh, bathrooms and gender? Well, I, I think the the most the thing is I think for policy reasons for a good policy rationale, I think like what are bathrooms for and what do people need to do in them. Like are bathrooms for the the you know members of the right wing to kind of you know tell people what gender is, or are bathrooms for people to go to the bathroom? Um, so well, it's so never it's only when people intermingle with other people. It's public bathrooms where the problems arise because nobody really cares what happens in a in a single stall bathroom. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But the the thing the thing that uh, people some people don't realize is that trans people have been going to the bathroom for a long time, 
and trans people have been using bathrooms like associated with their gender identity for a long time. Like I'm a transgender man. I use the men's bathroom. It's not an issue. Transgender women use the women's bathroom. More and more, you know, campuses hey, and colleges have uh, non-binary bathrooms. Paisley, what does that mean? I'm a transgender man. Yeah. So I was um when I was born, I was I was a girl and then uh over time I realized that actually my gender identity was male and that I I socially and, and I socially and medically transitioned. So I'm now a transgender man. Actually when we were talking about kills I was thinking should I talk about this but like when I went to the high school prom, I was a girl back then and my date which was just like a setup was wearing a kilt. <laughs> so Oh, that's <laughs> kind of funny. Yeah. Were you wearing a, a dress? I, I was wearing a dress. My family, my mother, my sister and I, we had one dress and we'd put it in the mail to ship to each other for whoever had some sort of fancy event to go to. I was oh, wearing what we called the, the dress. Yeah. The family dress. That's funny. That's, I know. Um, what prompted you to, um, to write this book? Well, I want, because I'm interested in transgender rights, and I think there's so much good stuff happening, and there's so many good developments that have happened in the area of transgender rights over the decades. Um, I just, I found that so interesting. But one of the things I wanted to kind of think deeper with this book is to think about the limits of what sometimes people call identity politics, or the limits of like focusing on like specifically transgender people. So that was one of the things I wanted to do with the book. And the other thing I wanted to do is make more connections between the transgender rights movement and the women's movement and show the, the, the connections between those movements. And also to get people to think deeper, like, you know, I teach gender studies and we have a lot of really smart students and everybody knows all about gender is socially constructed and everybody's got a very sophisticated understanding of like what gender is, you know. But when it comes to thinking about the government or what we in political science call the state, people are not, don't have as complex uh, or a sophisticated understanding of like what government does and how government works and how sometimes, you know, classifications are, you know, to understand how classifications work, even for male and female, we have to understand, like, at a deeper level, what states are doing. So those are, like, the three reasons I wanted to, to write the book. Well, it's a fascinating subject, and I want to talk some more, but I have a break coming up, Paisley. Can you stick around for a few minutes so we can talk some more? Absolutely. Okay. My guest is uh, Paisley Kura, and um, the name of the book is Sex Is As Sex Does, governing transgender identity if you're listening to us on wfovlp our voices radio 92.1 fm in flint they are a broadcast service of the flint odyssey house spectacle productions of my friend paul herring and we're going to let them squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break if you're uh, streaming us at tomsumnerprogram.com we have some messages as well and then uh, we will return in just a couple of minutes and uh, pick up my conversation with Paisley Curra. So don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. Lots more of the Tom Sumner program is coming up straight ahead. Hello out there, everybody. It's me, Tigger. T-I-double-G-R. That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs> 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines, since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Hawaiians. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County. Where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Babies come with lots of decisions. Cloth or disposable? Crib or bassinet? So when it comes to protection, go with the safest, most effective choice, vaccination. Get all the recommended vaccines for your baby by age two to protect your child against 14 serious childhood diseases. For more reasons to vaccinate, talk to your child's doctor. Go to cdc.gov vaccines or call 800-CDC-INFO. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention.
This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue our conversation with the author of a new book called Sex Is As Sex Does, Governing Transgender Identity, by noted scholar and transgender advocate Paisley Cura, who joins me by phone. Paisley, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around, and sorry to make you sit through all that. Oh, no, it's fascinating. Thanks, Tom. (laughs) Um, I'm glad you, I'm glad you think so. Um, we were talking about uh, in the last segment toward the end, especially um, that the idea of um, addressing gender identity is is fairly new in in the world of uh, public debate. And you were talking about how, a, a lot of the interests of of uh, that that revolve around gender identity were going to be tied to women's issues. Um, is that even more so if uh, the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade? Yes, I think they're I think they're very much connected. There's a way historically in which trans rights are connected to women's issues, and that the the very sex classification system we have that divides people into men and women. It's it's in the law, not because the legislature is thinking about, oh, we must make sure there's no room for trans people. It's because the state needed to make sure they had a way of distinguishing between men and women because men got more stuff. Men got more rights and resources, whether it be the right to vote, you know, to join professions, to apply for a credit card. All that kind of – all that sexism was like baked into our government. And so as feminism succeeded and as the women's movement brought down many of those obstacles to, to women's equality, that actually made it more possible for states to relax a little bit when trans people came along and said, okay, you can change your sex classification. But in, as to the question about Roe versus Wade, it's most definitely uh, connected. Um, I mean, we don't know for sure what's going the Supreme Court is going to do in, in June, but it looks pretty likely that they're going to overrule Roe versus Wade. And I think um, trans issues are connected to that because um, just as trans, just as um, uh, abortion issues have been connected to feminism, uh, trans issues are also kind of connected to the gender revolution. So there's this conservative commentator who writes for the New York Times named Ross Duthat, and he's a thoughtful guy, and um, he's deeply Catholic, and he, he explains his reasoning. Um, and he tweeted the other day, though, he had this tweet about Roe versus Wade that was like, uh, look at all, if you look in the 50 years that happened since Roe versus Wade, all this all this bad stuff has happened. Um, you know, men have not been able to um, stay in the workforce as long. They're less likely to be happy in their marriages. So he basically kind of blamed all the stuff that's happened to men that's not positive on Roe versus Wade. And then he has also written very recently about transgender youth and how and trans people generally, like transgender youth should just come to terms with the bio, bio, biological reality of the sex they are assigned at birth. So I think for the right wing, abortion and transgender issues are not really about abortion and transgender issues, but they're about all the changes that have happened based on gender in the last 50 years and some people's discomfort with, um, with, with the, the, the women's equality. Paisley, if you don't mind my asking, when did you become aware that something wasn't right about your gender assignment? 
Yeah, I think I, you know, I was I was born in 1964, so I am old, as my kid tells me constantly. Um, so when I was growing up, there wasn't a discourse. I grew up in Canada in a village of 200 people, you know, and everybody. The village was so small that when people went trick-or-treating for Halloween, you I'm, would not I'm stop just going to take a guess yeah. at this, Paisley, but there's yeah. there's a pretty good chance you were the only one. I was, yes, I was definitely <laughs> the only one. And there was, that was probably the, I think if anybody was gay or trans, they all left town. But the village was so small that you wouldn't stop at the new people's house for uh, for Halloween. And the new people had lived there for 21 years. Like, that's the kind of, <laughs> the kind of place I grew up <laughs> that's in. That's funny. Yeah, so, um, so I didn't have a name for what I was feeling, um, you know. And then I went to college, and I had always been attracted to women, so I thought, okay, I guess I'm a lesbian, which makes sense because I'm attracted to women. And then it wasn't until I was in graduate school, I was in my 20s, and I saw a film about trans men, and I'm like, oh, my goodness, that's exactly who I am. Because when I was little, I hadn't imagined that I would grow up and be a woman. I got, had some image of myself. I would be some, like, fellow walking down the street in my future self, which not wasn't really, you know, re- realistic given that I didn't know anything about being transgender. Um, so I wasn't really, a, I didn't, you know, identify as transgender until I realized like there was a name for who I was. And then over time, I, you know, became comfortable with that and, and transitioned. So. Well, I, I guess what I'm, I'm trying to get into, and this is probably something that, that lands on your desk all the time, um, as an advocate uh, on, on related issues, but for a lot of people, um, and and I'm thinking about uh, you know people in in roles of leadership in in schools and cities and and counties around the country, and parents. Um, Young people dealing with these issues is really uncomfortable because historically they prefer young people not to know or think anything that has anything to do with sexuality until they're no longer minors. Right, exactly. And so there's this phenomenon happening um, which takes the, the kind of the issue of trans youth or gender nonconforming youth and has really politicized it. And so I'm referring to these Republican bills and legislation in places like, you know, Alabama and Arizona, uh, Arkansas, uh, Texas, and says like, it is not okay to be supportive of transgender youth. We are going to make that illegal. We are going to criminalize that. So the Texas governor, you know, a few months ago said he was going to have anybody, any parent who was supportive of their transgender child, you know, investigated for child abuse. And then Ron DeSantis in Florida thought, oh, I'm going to copy him because, and he did said the same thing. Alabama passed a law that made it a felony to, um, that made it a felony for people to, to provide uh, supportive transgender care to, tra- to trans youth. So it's, it's been politicized uh, to a, well, a very and, unhealthy degree. And it has drawn in some people who aren't necessarily hateful or bigoted. They're, they're just squeamish about young people dealing with these issues. And so when they hear rhetoric, <clears throat> like some that has gone on in Michigan recently, about legislators... Um, uh, 
trying to, uh, I, I don't know, somehow uh, prep children um, by teaching certain kinds of things in school, uh, you know, uh, teaching um, gender differences uh, uh, or, or teaching about gender differently, that somehow these kids are being groomed. Yeah, that's again that kind of grooming rhetoric, it, and that it, it, that it, word draws in people who might not necessarily set out to combat these things, but they're just they're just squeamish enough about these issues coming up for minors that they get drawn in. Yeah, absolutely, and the grooming rhetoric you know, harks back to like really homophobic rhetoric about gay men and you can't have gay teachers because they'll be trying to sleep with their students and they'll be grooming them. Um, so they're trying to kind of attach the people, people's, you know, fears they have about like their children's safety to like tr transgender youth and, tra and transgender supportive uh, discourse. And that's just very effective political rhetoric, but has got nothing to do with reality. Like helping a, tra a transgender young person like feel comfortable uh, in their identity, helping them socially transition or helping them find a way to kind of uh, be gender nonconforming, that's only good for transgender youth. And it's got nothing to do with groups or um or or sex or or anything like that but you know just last week there's a the alabama has because they made it a felony a crime to uh support trans youth but a conservative judge appointed by donald trump a conservative judge basically ruled that the alabama policy of making this a felony to provide transgender uh supportive care was uncon was unconstitutional and illegal and you know why it's unconstitutional, the judge said? Because it interferes with this fundamental right that parents have to play the primary role in nurturing and caring for their children. So the state can come in and say, oh, you parents, you don't know what you're doing. We're going to take control of your, your kids' uh, care away from you. Because one of the things that um, my, my colleagues and friends who are advocates and work with transgender youth – like the right wing tries to pretend it's like it's a matter of parents' parents' rights and parental control, but when you see transgender youth, they have these parents who are fiercely supportive of their kids, and those parents—they're not like all like lefty, progressive New York City, Brooklyn hippies. They're just parents all over the country who have realized that their kid really is transgender and really needs support. Um, and so, for the state to come in and and, and tell these parents like, no, you can't support your kid because we have this ideological position on gender that the state wants to, you know, to make happen, uh, judges are starting to say, like, that's not okay. And this was a Trump-appointed judge. What is the role of public institutions? I, 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 I'm sympathetic to the idea and to this judge's ruling that says, Parents have the primary responsibility for raising and, and, and really educating their children. Now, how they choose to do that, homeschooling or public schools or whatever, that, that's a parental, or a parental choice. Um, but what are the responsibilities when you, and, and your book is, is partially titled uh, Governing Transgender Identity, what is acceptable? when it comes to governing transgender identity in schools, in institutions? Well, I think it's really important that we move all this 
talk of gender and transgender and hateful talk back to the level of like what is what harms people and what helps people so like having a policy based on like some ideal i some old-fashioned idea ideal of what gender is like is that good for for kids or is it not good for kids and i think that's the most important thing because we want children to thrive we want children to feel loved and safe and wanted and to have their their physical and you know emotional needs met and having the state and the school come in and say no you you can't identify that way or you can't use that pronoun and you must use this bathroom that is not helping transgender uh, kids thrive or or any kids really so i think what we the, the the best way to kind of govern transgender identity is to like focus on like the harms to to children and to and to people and 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 try to get out of the business of like using state policy to have a position in the gender wars. It seems like it's a tough sell. <laughs> yeah, you know, no, I think I think like you know the thing about like working as an advocate is like when you start when you're fighting over abstract ideas. You know, um, like you're fighting over like, oh, socialism or capitalism. Like those are just really big words, right? But uh, when you talk about like, well, should we, you know, make those folks in Manhattan who are like own five, you know, $50 million apartments pay a little bit more tax so that we'll have better schools? That seems like logical to people. So it's similar with transgender issues. It's like instead of having these big battles about what is gender and what is sex, like just focus on like who is harmed and how we can help people and make it really concrete. The bathroom controversy of a couple of years ago was, it just seemed like so much energy put into an issue that was very easily resolved by any architect in the country who could just carve up public bathrooms into separate small bathrooms. Yeah, it's the I mean, same real sense. estate in a stadium you know, if you if you had a bathroom that that was designed for twelve occupants, just make twelve little bathrooms in the same space. Yeah, exactly. It comes down to like, what are bathrooms bathrooms for, and who needs to use it? And so there are people who are working on that, and there's lots of architects interested in this question. Is like, it's not. It's, people want privacy. Uh, people want to have enough space if they're disabled to use the bathrooms. People want to be able to change their babies. Uh, people want to take their young kids into a bathroom with them, you know, if their kids are a different gender. Uh, there's lots of different things happening in, in bathrooms that we need to accommodate all those, all those people. But having transgender people like the state of North Carolina and I tried to do a few years ago, like, you know, prove their gender before they go into the bathroom, it's really kind of unworkable. Prove to whom? So I know, prove to who, exactly. Do we have I to mean, like, start putting guards at the doors of bathrooms? I mean, there's there comes a time when you have to consider the practicality yes, of some exactly. of these suggestions. I know, and that's why some of the suggestions, they're really about this uh, abstract emotional rhetoric stuff. And it's like, because I'm like, I have a beard, I'm balding, I look like a guy. Having me walk into a woman's bathroom is not going to make anybody feel safer. It doesn't make any sense. It's not going to make people feel safer. Um, and, you know, the idea that, that bathrooms should be places where gender is regulated, it really hurts gender nonconforming people. So one study found that, like, gender nonconforming women, women who are 
identified as women, assigned at birth as women, but they just like were not gender conforming. They're the group that is hassled the most in women's bathrooms. And they have every right to be there, but they were hassled the most because there's this gender policing that's going on in the bathrooms. I'm I'm not sure what what can be what can be done in a world that seems to be sliding to the right now. Well, I think again, part of it is like related to the larger political uh, situation where a lot of people don't get local news and local newspapers have folded and and so everything is national and don't everything get me is started like, on the quality <laughs> of news. Oh, I know exactly. <laughs> and so, so everything, so these big national fights. But people, you know, people need to kind of know who their neighbors are, um, and and see, oh, like that, oh, that I'm against transgender people because the, you know, Matt Drudge says they're terrible, and then they realize like the person, you know, the next cube will go over is a transgender woman, and they're like, oh, that's not so bad. I mean, so it's just like again, we need to. I don't know how we do this. Maybe you can solve this, Tom. But you know, move a little bit back to like the local and face-to-face -face politics and the practical and the harm these large, big, huge fights can cause people. Well, it just seems that when when a, a small number of people and and I'm thinking five or less sit down to approach a problem they can usually come up with a pretty reasonable solution that, that is a win-win for everybody. But once you start getting up into dozens plus, that all falls apart. Yeah, it, it, can, it gets, it, it gets it's the problem that's, that, that, I'm sorry, it just, things get blown out of proportion. Like, so right now, there's, in Michigan, I think both houses both chambers or whatever you call them there have got have attached a, a bill have attached a, to their budget bill something about trans girls not being able to play on girls teams and like that's a perfect example of like they're participating in this national republican right-wing discourse and it's really like a solution in search of a, in search of a problem like we don't there's just not a problem of, of like trans girls like wrecking women's sports or trans girls winning other trophies it's just like there are these kids it's good for kids to play sports it's especially good for girls to play sports. It's good for the self-esteem and all that sort of stuff. And like not letting not letting these trans girls on these girls' teams is just like it's, it's like a mean, spiteful politics where people are trying to score po points on a sort of national level that is harming people in the community. I mean, hopefully those won't pass, but I don't I don't know. Well, like you said, in in some of these instances. Um you know, it's a law in search of lawbreakers. <laughs> that, that's right, exactly. Last year, I think it was the AP did a story where they would call up the legislators sponsoring these bills and they'd ask them for like, oh, so what happened in your state that you, you know, you want this to happen? And they, most of them could not name any, any kids. I think Connecticut had two trans girls who were, who were really good runners and they, 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 they did well at the Connecticut level. And then when they got to the national competition, no, <laughs> they weren't even in the top 50, I don't think. So it's just like, it's not really an issue of co competition. It's it's an issue of like using these kids to make the score political points at the national level. And it's just mean-spirited politics. Well, the name of the book is Sex Is As Sex Does Governing Transgender Identity. And, you know, Paisley, one of the things that I thought we would be talking about um, 
and and we didn't really get a chance to get into very much is what what really is the role of government local state and national and and um what are they doing fooling around with these social things i know i know and it part is partly is because gender is like something that most state agencies like to record and, and, I, most and i'm talking about documents. people and i'm talking about people on the right and on the left you know, I'm I'm not just throwing the right under the bus on this because they seem to be coming down hard on some liberal issues. Um, you know, people on the left have uh, have their own special demons too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, the, the we don't really the government is involved in sex classification. It used to be involved to make sure women didn't get as much stuff, or to make sure like gay couples couldn't get married and with a ban on same-sex marriage you couldn't really have a ban on same-sex marriage unless you had a way to tell who was male or who was female and now we don't have that anymore the government at the federal state or municipal level it doesn't really need to be in the business of telling people who is male and who is female but i think because people have this cultural expectation that the government will classify you that way there it, it still shows up on our driver's license and our birth certificate but there's actually not a real need anymore and this is a place where like the policy doesn't doesn't really make sense in terms of what the states are are trying to accomplish well it's um it, it's an interesting conversation. It's very difficult for some people and um, very controversial for some people. And uh, again, the book is Sex is as Sex Does, Governing Transgender Identity by Paisley Cura, my guest this morning. And Paisley, we just have a couple of minutes left, but I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website you'd like to share? Sure, I definitely do. I um, It's my name. It's like P-A-I-S-L-E-Y, and my last name is C-U-R-R-A-H, so it's PaisleyCurra.com. My uh, my ancestors were Irish, and they got their names spelled wrong when they arrived in the New World. But um, that's how you can that's how you can find out about my uh, my book. And I would also encourage your listeners to look out the local groups in Michigan, like Transgender Michigan and Equality Michigan, and see what the issues are uh, in the state. Well, Paisley, what's next for you? I am I'm working on a new book that is focusing more directly on. Um, these Republican attacks, this Republican legislation on trans youth and, and trans sports and trying to kind of understand what they think they're trying to accomplish. So that's my, that's my next project. Well, Paisley, uh, as, I, as I say to all the guests, um, thanks for spending some time with me and the listeners this morning and uh, sharing your thoughts and expertise, not only with us, but in the book as well. And uh, keep up the good work. Well, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure, Tom. All right. Take care. (laughs) Bye-bye. Once again, uh, that was a noted scholar and transgender advocate, Paisley Cura, the author of Sex Is As Sex Does, Governing Transgender Identity. And we got lots more of the Tom Sumner program coming up. We've got... uh, 
Uh, we're going to take a short break first and uh, let our broadcast partners at uh, 92.1 FM in Flint squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. So don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. We'll be back with more right after this. Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans, and soon they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, the hugger and see her on her birthday. You know, I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Ranger Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. Yo, speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? Mm. It just expired last week. You don't even own a car. Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey. Mom and Dad, you're being scammed. It's a robocall. Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate, but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, file a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it, you're busy. But you know Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. It's 2022, and this year the Tom Sumner Program begins its 15th year. It would not be here without support through the years from individuals and organizations like these. Seth David Radwell. East Village Magazine. Flint Institute of Music. Hello, I'm Maestro Ricky DeMeg. Flint Community School. MTA Flint. Flint Comics and Entertainment. Hamity Complete Food Center. The Flint River Watershed Coalition. W.H. Weiscarver. The Genesee County Road Commission. Loan Museum Auto Fair. Thomas Appliance. The Genesee. Health plan with blood technology. My community.
Community College, Pure Michigan. Friends on Facebook have also helped by contributing to the show's online fundraisers two or three times a year. If you would like to help the Tom Sumner program continue to thrive by becoming a sponsor, send an email of interest to Tom at TomSumnerProgram.com. Add your name to the list of supporters, past, present, and future. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner program. to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. In order for you to understand what I'm going to do next, I have to go way back and speak about my great-grandfather whom we traced back to Marie Antoinette. As a matter of fact, my great-grandmother traced him back there a couple of times. <laughs> but he was partly responsible for the birth of my grandfather. He thought. <laughs> My grandfather was born in Denmark. He was Danish after his mother and Swedish after a friend of his father's. <laughs> he was one of the great inventors of his time. He invented the burglar alarm, which unfortunately was stolen from him. <laughs> He was a brilliant man. He was, among other things, a PhD. Just a f- <laughs> So was his wife. However, besides being a brilliant f- he also was a great chemist. He was the one who invented the cure for which there was no disease in the <laughs> Unfortunately, his wife later caught the cure and died. <laughs> he was a strange personality. He always experimented with something. Once he... Um, he crossed an Idaho potato with a sponge. <laughs> Imagine that silly idea. It tasted horrible. But it sure held a lot of gravy. I think his greatest invention was a soft drink, which he called Four Up. <laughs> but it wasn't successful at all. So he invented Five Up. But still it didn't click, you know. Then came Six Up. But still nobody liked it. So he gave up and died heartbroken a couple of weeks later. But little did he know how close he came. <laughs> Then I was born, and when that happened, my parents were 
Well, they were not poor, but they didn't have any money. <laughs> so I was actually born at home. And when my mother saw me, she was taken to the hospital. <laughs> One day, when I was four years old, my father came home. And he found me in the living room in front of a roaring fire, which made him very angry because we didn't have a fireplace. <laughs> there I sat, and here my father stood, burning up. <laughs> he pointed at me, see, my father was left-handed. He always pointed this way. I was sitting on the other side. <laughs> so my father said, Borger, he didn't know my first name. <laughs> See, in my father's family, we had a little trouble up here. In the head. My father was all right, but his two brothers, my male uncles. You know, in Denmark, we always distinguish, you know. I don't know if you're familiar with the fact that we have three sexes over there. <laughs> Male, female, and convertible. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I was supposed to have been back to Denmark this summer. But I ain't going. Oh, once I made up my mind what I was going to be, and that's the way it's going to be. <laughs> what I meant to tell you before was, and this is not a joke, this is really a fact, that two weeks ago, we celebrated my uncle's 103rd birthday. Isn't that something? Thank you very much. 103rd birthday. Unfortunately, he wasn't present. <laughs> How could he be? He died when he was 29. <laughs> but what I meant to say was that he was the one who went crazy. And his mother used to say that he went crazy because he never got the woman he loved. And that's a lot of nonsense because his brother went just as crazy. And he got her. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program.
Program, don't you know? Go on, go on, get out of here. <laughs> 